Please pray with me. Father, what, a, what an apt offertory that was. We thank you for just the simple yet profound truth of the chorus. That as we trust and obey, there's truly no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And we acknowledge, God, that we are all in progress, works in progress, in, in our faith, in our walks, in our trusting in you and your word and our obedience and submission to it. And there are some things, Lord, that are harder than others and um, there's some subjects that are, are a little more challenging than others, but we do trust you, God, and we seek to obey you individually, together as a church body, grateful that that your thoughts and your ways are higher than ours and and you are worthy uh, of that trust and that obedience. So as we get into your word now, God, I pray that you would bless it, that um, our hearts would would be filled with your truth and and we would have uh, a right understanding, God, of this topic of marriage and divorce and things that are talked about in Mark chapter 10 here. We're so grateful, God, that we get to have this time together. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story of a farmer who went to an attorney to get help in acquiring a divorce. And the lawyer said to him, Do you have any grounds? And the farmer replied, Yep, I got about 300 acres. And the lawyer said, oh, you're not understanding me. Do you have any case? And the farmer said, no, I don't have a case, but I do have a John Deere. And that's what I keep my my farm and my 300 acres with. The lawyer tried again. No, 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 you're still not understanding me. Do you have a grudge? To which the farmer replied, yep, and that's where I keep my John Deere. You're still not understanding me, said the lawyer. Do you beat your wife up? The farmer answered, nope, she gets up at five o'clock, just like I do. Finally, the frustrated lawyer said, sir, I'm trying to find out if you have any reason for getting a divorce. Well, said the farmer, you see, we have this communication problem. I shared that humorous story with you. Um, I want you to understand not to make light of divorce. Uh, Levity does not equate to lightness necessarily. And the reality is that there's nothing funny about divorce. And just with my, my own background and uh, just things that, that have happened in, in my home growing up, uh, just that, that ominous cloud, dark cloud hanging over um, our, our family all the time, uh, just it was not, it was not something that um, was pleasant. And um, yet on the outside, we were an upstanding, overachieving, straight A having Asian family home. And, um, and yet uh, there was lots of turmoil uh, because of that dark cloud hanging overhead. Certainly this is a hot button topic for many people and it seems so in Jesus's day as well, which we'll see. Someone once wisely said that, quote, one of the blessings of expository preaching and going verse by verse through the Bible is that sooner or later you will preach on every subject imaginable. But One of the disadvantages is that sooner or later you will preach on every subject imaginable. 
teaching God's word expositionally does force us to deal with the sensitive issues of life. And that's the case before us today. We continue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, which we started last week in part one. We called it Marriage According to Jesus. And we set down the biblical basis for marriage, or attempted to. And Jesus also deals with the subject of divorce. So if you turn to Mark chapter 10, uh, as you get there, I want to just share some statistics with you once again. In 2021, last year, in the United States, about 50% of married couples divorced, which is the sixth highest divorce rate in the world. And I think that's been the case, actually, for a number of years now, which we're probably all aware of at this time. But did you know subsequent marriages have an even higher divorce rate? 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. And sometimes you'll hear also that the numbers are similar for Christians. Like half of Christian marriages also end in divorce. And I would argue that that it's probably professing Christians, people who claim to be Christians who are filling out those surveys. And, um, you know, that's where the information is coming from. So uh, we got to keep these statistics in perspective. Uh, true Christians, uh, I don't believe that the, the rate is nearly as high as for the world. And yet it does still happen. Just a few more numbers here. That means this 50% divorce rate year by year in America, that means that roughly there are 1 million divorces per year in this country. And have you ever thought about how many people that that affects? An ex-husband, an ex-wife, that's 2 million people right there. And then we have kids involved uh, many times, sometimes one kid or multiple kids. And then you have in-laws who are involved. Then you have just extended family, and then the impact on the, the rest of society, and then the meaning of marriage is continues to be devalued, and so um, no-fault divorce policies, okay, all of these things accommodating the sinful ways and practices of man, how much heartache, how much pain, how much untold and unspoken damage done, so many scars, depression, broken up families, financial chaos, Whenever people choose divorce. Our sermon theme from Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 is the same as last week. Jesus is teaching on the, the preciousness of the marriage relationship and also the sinfulness of divorce. I want to submit to you again that our minds and hearts must align with God's mind and heart from the word as revealed in his word. On this subject and every other subject, every area of life, there's some emotional arguments for allowing divorce, but I remind you that God cares and knows more, far more and far better about this than you and I do. And we know that his way is always better for our lives and for our souls, and it's always the way that is going to glorify him to the utmost. So we took the time last Sunday to lay the groundwork on the biblical view of marriage. And I wanted to make sure that we're all clear in our own convictions about this, that we would embrace it, that we would exalt God by embracing it. 
My aim was to lay those foundations about what we should believe and be convicted about and know and love about what marriage is according to the Bible. And isn't it great? Isn't it great to be assured that God is the one who created marriage? He invented it. He rooted it in creation, one of our points last week. He reiterated it throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself repeated it and reaffirmed what marriage is. In other words, marriage is not merely the societal evolution of man, cultural norms, man's practices, which can be changed over time. It's not something that can be redefined as we're so valiantly trying hard to do these days. It's not based on the prevailing winds of the modern or postmodern world's morality and spirituality and the the most recent concept of, of what love is according to man. For us as Christians, we're clear, or at least we should be, that marriage is rooted in creation by God. That truth is reiterated in the Bible and by our Lord Jesus himself, I'm reviewing from last week, okay? And what's more, what's more, isn't it wonderful to know that marriage serves a greater purpose than just the physical or the practical or the social, but it actually points to a a greater spiritual reality. Marriage was made to reflect Christ's relationship to the church, and these are things that we need to be rooted in. We need to be uh, just absorbed in as, as our understanding of, of what this is. Marriage is an earthly picture of the spiritual relationship that exists between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. And what an intimate union, what an intimate picture that is. It represents the gospel. It is representative of the gospel. As the wife submits to her husband, reflecting Christ's submission, or the church's submission to Christ, And as the husband loves his wife, that mirrors Christ's love, sacrificial, unconditional, that he had for the church, giving himself up for her. So this is an eternal bond and unity that's formed, which will be consummated one day in the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, I'm just going to read Revelation 19, 7 through 9. This is uh, part of the end of the story. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How sweet that is to think about, guys, as we continue to strive towards godliness and good works that God prepared for us beforehand. That final day. Then he said to me, the angel said to John, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Folks, we we dare not trifle with this. Our Heavenly Father designed the sacred and beautiful institution which has significance beyond the earthly. We need to own that, know that, love that, proclaim that. Live that. So as precious as marriage, according to Jesus, is, he also rightly teaches the people then and us now about the sinfulness of divorce. Some folks, many folks in his day, including the spiritual leaders, were trifling with this. They were. And that brings us to our text in Mark chapter 10. 
If you're able to stand with me, I'll ask you to do that as we honor God's word. Mark chapter 10, our passage once again is verses 1 through 12. And we're going to go through it today in a little more typical manner than we did last week. Mark 10, 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Please be seated. This is part two of two, marriage according to Jesus. Same theme as as last week, and it's in your your um, your bulletin there on the the page behind the back. And uh, let me just give you the the quick breakdown. I didn't put an insert and an outline uh, points. This is kind of just uh, anchoring us through through the text. Let me just give you the quick breakdown here. Verses 1 and 2, we see the trap. The trap, or you can put, I have in my my notes, trap slash test. And in verses 3 to 5 is the proof text. The proof text, which I'll explain when we get there. Verses 6 through 9 is the truth about marriage. The truth about marriage. And the last verses, 10 through 12, is the teaching on divorce. The teaching on divorce. So, verses 1 and 2 again, the trap or the test. Jesus and the 12, they're leaving Capernaum in Galilee, which is their ministry headquarters for the last couple of years. And they're getting up, departing from there. He goes from the north and down towards the south to the region of Judea. And uh, it says beyond the Jordan. And during these travels, a journey going down south, once again, crowds are there, as always is what happens when they catch wind that Jesus is around. They're following him. And we're reminded that Jesus' focus at this time, this last several months of his ministry, is on private ministry of the Twelve. And yet that doesn't mean he's completely ceased from healing and teaching. There's instances of that coming up. But I want us to get a picture of the time frame. Okay, how long these travels and other journeys that happen uh, and are described in the rest of Mark chapter 10 and the other Gospels. Uh, the next several lessons in Mark 10 will encompass six months or so okay, until we get to chapter 11, which is the what's known as the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. It's one week, less than a week before Jesus is crucified. So chapter 10 encompasses, entails about six months or so. And so as we consider that, we should think about what precious time there is left in Jesus' earthly life. 
around six months. Hey, that, that's, that's only about 180 days, right? We're almost halfway through year 2022. What lessons will Jesus teach the 12 and the people during these last several months? And of course, Jesus continues to preach and teach. He has been for the last couple of years. The kingdom of God and the gospel of God. How to enter God's kingdom of heaven before it's too late. Eternal life is at stake. But along with that precious good news that he's been preaching, of which the first word of the gospel is repent, turn from your sins, believe in Jesus. Everyone's going to need to know how to live in light of being kingdom citizens. Okay, born-again people who are learning how to follow Christ in every area of life. And someone sagely and rightly said, the Bible is not a book about marriage and success. Okay, it's about Christ. That being said, God does want us to know how we should live as Christians, as those who belong to God, as those who are going and are part of His kingdom. And a very critical area of life for most people is marriage. For the crowds back then, for us today. So in God's wise providence, some Pharisees come up. They're asking. And it's more like testing, right? They came up to Jesus, testing him. Began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce here comes via his enemies, these Pharisees who come up to him for the purpose of testing. And we know they've been scheming for some time now, right, all the way back to Mark chapter 3, on how they're going to plot to destroy him. Well, here's another opportunity for them to get him in trouble on this very touchy, sensitive topic of divorce. And they ask him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So what was the wicked trap being set here? A couple angles, it seems, that these Pharisees were taking. Remember, at this time now, verse 1 says they were in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Okay, this is an area also known as Perea. Who was in power over this area but Herod Antipas? Okay, the same Herod of Mark chapter 6, who had John the Baptist beheaded for what? Because John the Baptist kept calling him out for his adulterous relationship, adulterous marriage with Herodias. Recall that his wife, Herodias, was previously married, and but she was divorced from his half-brother, Herod Philip, in order to marry him. Okay, this was a, this was an immoral, adulterous relationship. So if the Pharisees can trap Jesus here by, by getting him to say something about divorce, which they can report to Herod, their hope is that Maybe Jesus would meet the same end as John the the Baptist did. Off with his head. Okay, This was a cunning and wicked plot. Another evil angle of this scheme was to trap Jesus in the crossfires of two religious schools. During that time, there were basically two different rabbinical schools that the scribes and Pharisees identified with. They were named after famous rabbis. One was called the School of Shammai, and the other was the School of Hillel. Apparently, it was a a rivalry that that was like USC versus UCLA. These schools held very different views on divorce. Although Jewish law permitted divorce, 
where these schools differed was, was on the grounds, you know, the reasons for ending a marriage. Rabbi Shammai held the more conservative view, teaching that the only lawful reason that divorce could be granted was for adultery. In Leviticus 20.10, the law commanded that adulterers were actually to be put to death by stoning. But by this time, stoning for that reason was outlawed. So divorce became the remedy for adultery in a marriage. And divorce instead of stoning. So only the man was allowed to seek a divorce. Women could not divorce their husband, whatever the reasons, not allowed. Okay, so that was the school of Shammai. What did Rabbi Hillel teach? Well, his was a very liberal view of divorce, much more permissive. To quote one scholar, he taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If she took down her hair in public, if she was seen talking to another man, if she ruined a meal by burning the food or putting too much salt in it, if she spoke evil of her mother-in-law, if she was infertile, even if her husband met a woman that he thought was prettier, she could be divorced, end quote. So here's a, a question for us. Hey, which rabbi's view do you think was more popular in the day? For those who said Hillel, you got it. You got it. Hey, most of the Pharisees even followed the Hillel school of thought on this. And this was the general understanding of the Jewish people, the crowds listening in there, based on the Pharisees' teaching. And so you want to note in uh, the parallel passage, the parallel passage is Matthew chapter 19. And in verse 3, uh, the Pharisees ask it this way. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay, for any reason at all. They're not just asking if divorce was permissible. They're asking is divorce for any reason, for any matter, okay, like, like what Hillel teaches. So, again, we see the trap the Pharisees are setting for, for Jesus. They're wanting him to answer not according to the truth, but according to their man-made traditions, man-made preferences. So if he doesn't go along with the program, okay, which so far, has Jesus gone along with the program on like virtually any issue, any area? No, he has not. Okay, But especially on this hot-button topic, he's going to be in trouble with King Herod and Herodias, and his influence will be in jeopardy among the crowds of the people. And we might say, or think, especially the men, okay, most of whom favored the more permissible view on divorce and many of whom may have been divorced themselves okay so there's lots of um, traps here to fall into and that's that's the plan so let's look next at how jesus responds to this wicked devious plot verses three to five the proof text verse three first he answers and says to them what did moses command you and isn't this um this wise of jesus right he says go back to the scriptures He asked them, what does the word actually say? Moses, that is the law of Moses, also known as the law of God through Moses. His question was clear. What does God's word command about this? So they answer in verse four. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So um, for some of us, those those part of that verse is in all capitals. I was I was surprised to, to learn recently that um, just some people are not aware when it's in all caps, um, it's not it's not the, the Bible translators um, shouting at us or emphasizing something, but rather it means they're quoting or alluding to something from the Old Testament. Okay, so all capital letters. 
And so the Pharisees are making reference to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen, but it's a very long sentence, so you might want to turn there. But they're using this passage of Scripture to present it as proof for their doctrine, a proof text. And so um, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, this is their proof text. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that latter husband dies and who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So that's the proof text for their permissive teaching on divorce. But does it actually give proof or support for their case? Just by the way, so proof texting There's proof text, which can be used legitimately, right? Um, But proof texting is a phrase, it it means when one uses scripture in an isolated, out-of-context way in order to support their view or their their agenda or their point, their position that that they hold to. So um, when you do it that way, take scripture out of context to prove your case, uh, to prove your point, that's called eisegesis. Okay, you're, you're reading into the text um, your own preferences or your own presuppositions or your own agenda. Okay, exegesis is extracting out of the text what the author was intending to say. And that's what we do our best to do here at Faith Bible Church, whether it's preaching or teaching or just counseling, shepherding, all of it, Right? So um, eisegesis, bad. Exegesis, good. And so the Pharisees were, were using this passage from Deuteronomy to support their view that, that divorce was okay. It was permitted for any reason at all, as long as a man wrote a certificate of divorce. And then he could send her away, basically divorce her. And by the way, we can do this proof texting with, with just about any topic, right? Theology or just whatever. But... Pharisees here were interpreting this to mean, uh, actually twisting that Deuteronomy 24 passage to say that marriage is like uh, a disposable contractual agreement, especially for the man. Their objective, again, was to trap Jesus, but it was also to maintain this permissible divorce policy. They wanted to retain the status quo. One scholar wrote, divorce was relatively easy in those days, in Jesus' time, and the Pharisees and rabbis intended to keep it so. Unfortunately for them, okay, easy divorce or divorce for any reason at all was not what that passage or any other Old Testament scripture, for that matter, was teaching. Okay, to quote William Hendrickson, he says, Many, including the Pharisees, interpreted that passage as, If you wish to divorce your wife for any reason whatever, go right ahead, but be sure to hand her a divorce certificate. 
But the real meaning of the passage is this. Husband, you better think twice before you reject your wife. Remember that once you have put her away, she has become the wife and she has become the wife of another. You cannot afterward take her back. Not even if that other husband should also have rejected her or should have died. End quote. See, Moses mentioned the bill of divorce in that Deuteronomy 24 passage. Okay, but only in passing. But these Pharisees placed all the emphasis on it. They were stressing the concession and ignoring the intention of the scripture. So in verse 5, Jesus points them and us to this truth as he answers them. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And so in Deuteronomy 24, it was the people's hardness of heart. And Jesus applies this to the Pharisees and the people of his day because of your hardness of heart. He tells them this was given because God knows your hearts are hard. It is not a proof text that allows or condones divorce um, in any way, in any stretch of the imagination. Okay, much less uh, a command for divorce. There's another translation that when Jesus says, he wrote you this commandment, he wrote you this commandment, because of your heart and of the heart, he wrote you this commandment. Another translation, this precept, okay, this precept, it's not a commandment. It's not a command ever to divorce your wife. There's no, no such thing in scripture, but it refers to the restrictions that Moses laid down in permitting a divorce. It refers to the restrictions that Moses laid out in permitting a divorce. Okay, and that was because of their low moral condition. So, again, the Pharisees, they were stressing the Mosaic concession, right? Because of the hardness of heart. But Jesus was emphasizing the principle. Okay, the principle, the truth, that in God's design and purpose, marriage is sacred and divine. And since that's the case, husband and wife should remain one. Should remain one. And this is what we covered last Sunday. Okay, the preciousness of the marriage relationship according to the Bible. This leads us to the third point for today. The truth about marriage, verses 6 through 9. And this is what our main focus was last week. But we saw then that Jesus refers back to Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He affirms God the Creator. He acknowledges that God made Adam and Eve. They're not mythical or symbolic beings, but historical people, the very first human beings that God created. And Genesis 1.27, God made them male and female, which we noted the way that Eve was made out of Adam. That's Genesis 2, not out of the ground. And uh, I appreciate what Matthew Henry remarked about this. He says, quote, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved, end quote. We saw clearly from these Genesis passages that God created this very good thing called marriage. And Jesus defines it by what Genesis 2 said, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So he adds, so they, the husband and wife, are no longer two, but one flesh. At this time, I'm going to refer you back to last Sunday's sermon for the rest of the very important foundations that we tried to, to lay down, um, teaching on the biblical basis for marriage. I trust you'll be encouraged as you listen to it if you haven't yet. But very quickly, um, I offered just a, a few definitions of marriage, and uh, I'll give you just the, the three of them right now, which is going to launch us into another part that I want to um, distress today. So I gave you Wayne Mack's definition as he was talking about one flesh, which he says, quote, marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. And that was one. Another one I, I offered was an intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one physically and relationally in the whole of life. Okay, so that was another kind of this summary definition. Last one is this. Marriage is the union of two members of the opposite sex who have made a covenant to each other in holy matrimony. And that's where I want to uh, just kind of explain a little further today about covenant. A covenant. As defined by the scriptures, what is a, a covenant? It's a solemn and binding relationship which is meant to last a lifetime. It's a solemn and binding relationship, which is meant to last a lifetime. And one might argue it's, it's actually the, the most solemn and most binding and most intimate contract known in the Bible. Hey, we're aware of the many covenants in God's word, hey, very important, and um, some of them are described between people, between Man and man. For example, Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech. In Joshua chapter 9, Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites. In 1 Samuel 18, which we read somewhat recently, if we're doing our Bible reading plan, Jonathan and David, they made a covenant with each other. But some of the major covenants between God and man and certain men, Genesis 9, the, what's known as the Noahic covenant because God makes a covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 12 and in certain instances uh, throughout Genesis is God's covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant. In Exodus chapters 19 to 24, God makes covenant with Moses. So it's sometimes called the Mosaic covenant. And 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with King David. And so uh, throughout the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And then we get to Jeremiah 31. And then we get to the time of Jesus. And on comes the New Covenant. So God doesn't enter into any of these covenants lightly. They're solemn. They're binding. And they're, they're, they're binding until death. And they should never be taken lightly. Pastor Andrew Murray he was writing this over a hundred years ago. Listen to this. Quote, one of the words of scripture, which is almost going out of fashion a hundred years ago, is the word covenant. There was a time when it was the keynote of the theology and the Christian life of strong and holy men. We know how deep in Scotland it entered into the national life and thought. It made mighty men 
to whom God and his promise and power were wonderfully real. It will be found still to bring strength and purpose to those who will take the trouble to bring all their life, and we might add, and their marriages, under control of the inspiring assurance that they are living in covenant with a God who has sworn faithfully to fulfill in them every promise he has given. End quote. With regards to marriage, there was a time, even in, in our country, in our society, when there was this sense and understanding of it being this holy covenant between a man and a woman and their God okay, for a lifetime, okay, rather than a, a, an upgraded social contract between two people, and it could be a man and a woman, or man and a man and a woman and a woman, or whoever, The Old Testament covenants were serious. They were binding. That Hebrew phrase translated, make a covenant. It's the idiom, karat barit. More literally, it means to to cut a covenant. The noun, berit, it's an agreement that is made by passing between pieces of cut flesh. So that verb, karat, it means to divide or to cut in two. Right to make a covenant. So the practice was, when a covenant was made between two people in the Old Testament, uh, an animal or animals like a, a goat or a lamb, it would be slain and its its carcass would be cut in half. And the two people who cut this covenant with each other, they would solemnize. They would walk between the two halves of the the carcasses, and that would symbolize their commitment to keep their promise. Okay, it was it was like they were saying. May God do to me, hey, cut me in half, if I were to break this covenant that I'm making with you before God. Any sense of this kind of commitment is something that's been virtually lost in our day. And we see it in the, the corporate world. People feel so entitled, especially young people nowadays, if they're their rights or their preferences or, or their um, feelings even are, are not being met. Hey, it's on to the next next place, right? Companies have such high employee turnover rates from top to bottom. You hear about it all the time. We see it in the sports world where people switch teams at the drop of a hat. Hey, they're unhappy with their contract, hey, which, which uh, they signed. They're the ones who signed it, but all of a sudden they're not happy with how much they're getting or the length of it. They're not happy with their teammates or uh, they're not happy with their situation. Okay, back in the, the olden days, when I was coming up, trades in the, in the sports world were very rare. Okay, it, was, uh, it was like uh, this, almost this, if you're a big sports fan, like when your, your favorite player got traded, it was like someone died and you're, you're just like, you know, weeping. Okay, but now it's expected. It's like there's no loyalty whatsoever anywhere. Unfortunately, we see this also even within the church. Okay, so many people go from church to church. They're church hopping. They never settle into commitment to a local body as the scriptures would prescribe. And, of course, we see it in the realm of marriage, right? These sadly alarming rates of divorce. So when Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, we need to pay attention I mentioned briefly the concept of permanence last week. And that's the the idea of the marriage covenant. Jesus is teaching on the preciousness and the permanence of marriage as God designed it. He says the two become one flesh 
and that God is the one who's joined it together. So no one should separate it. Not the husband, not the wife, not the kids, not the in-laws, not a more attractive person, and not the world, not anyone. To further emphasize that permanence, Matthew 19, verse 5, you can just jot these down, Matthew 19, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, 31. And listen, they also quote Genesis 2, 24. And they add the words that are actually in Genesis 2.24. And it says, and be joined to his wife. Be joined to his wife. Okay, the two shall become one flesh and be joined to that word in Greek, okay, proskalao. It literally means to, to glue one thing to another so that it sticks, so that it, that it, that it cleaves. It's the idea of, of uniting or Adhering, okay, like glue. The husband and wife are joined together. Okay, it's an uh, incredibly important picture of the bonds of marriage. Okay, they're now united. They're adhering closely to one another. They're faithfully devoted to each other. Not anyone else. Okay, the husband cleaves to his wife and vice versa. Okay, what, what a wonderful picture of oneness that God the Creator provides as a man and a woman enter into this marriage covenant. A a couple I I did a wedding for a few years ago, uh, they chose to have a unity candle as part of their ceremony. And and some people do that. It's it's a a thing. So both the bride and groom have lighted candles. And during the ceremony, they come together and they light a, a single unlit candle. And then they blow out their individual candles. And this is a, a picture of their, their oneness now. Their, it symbolizes that the two have become one. So the joining together of two in marriage, this is the, it's the most intimate union possible between a man and a woman. It is a, a beautiful unity that I want us to embrace and a, a precious permanence of that relationship of those who have been glued together. On the other hand, imagine this. Okay, maybe there's a, you take a picture of me, take a picture of my wife, right? Go and develop it at, at Costco. And if that's not, you know, just something that you want to imagine, just imagine your, yourself and your spouse or whoever, right? Take a picture and, and uh, get it developed at Costco and um, get them back and, and you glue them together. Okay? Stick them together and let it set for a day or two or three. And then imagine trying to tear that picture apart. Okay, what would that produce? Well, that's a picture of what God is saying about the, the bonds of marriage and this, this covenant relationship between husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no man tear apart, let no man divide, let no man separate. Okay, that's the truth. That's the, that's the true command about marriage. This is what Jesus uh, chooses, how he chooses to answer this Pharisee's question who's saying, hey, can't anybody just get a divorce for any reason? And Jesus gives them the truth. He uses the scripture. We went over it last week, but... That's where we should land. Okay, So let's cover the last point here in our remaining time, verses 10 through 12. Lastly, the teaching on divorce. And it says there in verse 10, this is in the house. So there's a house there somewhere in that Perean area. And um, extended teaching happening with Jesus and the disciples. And they ask him again. They question him again. They, They don't get it, what he was just teaching. So this speaks to the sensitive nature or the controversial nature of this topic. 
Okay? And so he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So um, without going to the parallel passage in Matthew 19, it seems that Jesus is saying in every single case, anyone who divorces their spouse and remarries someone else, they're committing the serious sin of adultery. And this would be true. Again, this is part of the abominable sin that King Herod committed. And, and so what is the simple teaching on divorce? Okay. Part of it is Malachi 2.16, where God says, Yahweh says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. And we, as Christians, are to love what God loves, and we are to hate what God hates. Jesus, again, what is the simple teaching on divorce? It's this, as the KJV says, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. But we need to put that together with Matthew 19, which is the parallel passage. And Jesus repeats the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. So listen, Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. He answers, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And that's not God's plan. But then he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for what? Immorality. Okay, Greek word, porneia. And marries another woman, commits adultery. So Matthew 5.32, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Again, Deuteronomy 24, right? But I say to you, which Jesus repeatedly is clarifying and explaining what the actual scripture means. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, it's translated unchastity there, but it's the same Greek word, porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here we come to Jesus' teaching on divorce. He never commands it. He never commends it. He never recommends it. But, according to our Lord, there is one biblical grounds for divorce, which has been called the exception clause. I call it the exceptional clause. However you want to put it. It's for the grounds is for immorality, porneia. This is sexual immorality. Specific, it's not just general immoral behavior. It is sexual immorality, which would include adultery, okay, relations with someone other than your spouse, okay, unfaithfulness in that way. It would include, obviously, homosexuality. It would include sexual abuse. Okay, this is unrepentant sexual sin unfaithfulness to your wife or to your husband. Right? And I, I need to add, uh, in today's world, one could argue uh, a husband or wife, but a husband who habitually watches pornography, okay, which is such a huge problem these days. So we need to sober up about that, men and ladies, but men 
So the other, besides porneia, okay, being biblical grounds for divorce, is, is this. The only other exception, which again I, I say the exceptional clause, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And maybe we can turn there just for a, a few moments. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16. And uh, there's actually four categories or four groups of people being described in this passage. We're going to hone in on verse 15, but um, just want to talk through this really quickly. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Paul teaching the Corinthians uh, about marriage here. Verse 8, he says, But I say to you, no, but I say to the unmarried and to widows, that is, it is good for them if they remain even as I. So Paul is single at this point, right? But he says in verse 9, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so that's the first group, right? Single people. Maybe it's uh, just unmarried yet, or it could be widows, right? So that's the, the first group. He says it's, it's good for them to, to remain Single, it's, it's, it's a blessing, uh, could be profitable. But if there's that desire uh, to, to have marriage and marriage and the relationship there, it's better to be married. So that's one. Verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions. He says, not I, but the Lord. And so, in other words, Jesus has made the case in his earthly ministry okay, about what marriage is and uh, teaching on that. But he says to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And to the married. So this is uh, particularly talking to Christian marrieds. So the wife should not leave her husband. There, there should not be divorce. Parenthetically, he adds verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. And so, so Christian people, if their husband and wife are both Christian, they should remain married. There should not be divorce. If there somehow is a divorce, the, the spouse, the, the husband or wife needs to remain unmarried. Otherwise, it's, it's reconcile. Okay? Restore the marriage. Be married back to your husband or wife. So verse 12, it says, but to the rest, I say, and not the Lord, or he's not quoting Jesus here, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Okay, so this is the third group of people, right? Um, one one spouse is a believer and the other is not. Okay? And, you know, this would be a, perhaps a common occurrence during the early church times where a couple is, are, are both unbelievers and one of them gets the gospel shared to them and they become saved. They become a Christian and now they're in a marriage where they're a believer and their, their spouse is, is not saved. Okay? So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, if that's the case, you as a Christian 
are not to leave. If your unbelieving spouse wants to stay in the marriage. And so lastly, in verse 15, is our final group. It says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, so this is the, the final one where the, the, there's a Christian and an un, unbeliever in the marriage, and the unbelieving one is, is wanting to, to end the marriage, wanting to divorce. Okay, it says that the brother or sister, the, the Christian, is not under bondage, no longer bound to the marriage. Okay, they're no longer bound to the marriage. They're even able to remarry because it's a, it would be a, a legitimate biblical grounds for divorce. Okay, so the sin of adultery, porneia, porneia and, and all the sexual immorality that's involved, and, and a believer and an unbeliever, the unbelieving wife or husband wants to divorce, and they leave. Those are the only two exceptional clauses given in Scripture. And this is an incredibly important um, note to make, that Paul is not saying and Jesus is not saying that if, if there's sexual immorality, there's pornea, there's adultery even, or if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, that that's an automatic go ahead and do it. It's not even saying that. And I, and I say that with the truth about marriage, folks. It's meant to be a covenant. It's meant to be binding till death do us part. It's, it's not meant to be broken. And that's, that's part of the definition of marriage as God designed it. So it doesn't mean that one has to divorce or needs to divorce. Okay? Even in those very, very difficult, and I'm not trying to minimize that because I, I've just, I've known people, okay? But this should be the goal for Christians. Repentance, restoration, reconciliation. Okay? That should be the goal to keep the covenant. But if everything has been done uh, in just the, in the Christian's power to keep it, and the unbelieving person still wants to go, the, the fornicating or the, or the adulterous wife or husband, they, they're not repent. They want to commit. They want to continue in their sin. Okay, this is allowed. Divorce is allowed in those exceptional cases. So just very generally, if there's an unbiblical divorce, especially if the husband sends the wife away, divorces her legitimately, unbiblically, the wife cannot remarry. Jesus is saying that would be adultery. And vice versa would apply. And I, I don't want to get into all the different scenarios that come up, and there's so many ways that this can be really complicated and, and everything, but I'm just trying to be faithful to bring the, the main things to, to light here. Um, as we go through this text today. All right? So, conclusion. There's, uh, there's so many unbiblical reasons that people give uh, for, for pursuing divorce. Okay? We've, we've fallen out of love. Or he's not the same person I, I knew when I married him. Or she's just, uh, you know, just all these sorts of things. Oh, this, it would be horrible for, for the kids if we tried to, to stay together. And, you know, on and on and on, right? So many things. Um, but the truth is, uh, none of those are, are biblical grounds 
uh, to end a marriage. And we hear in the celebrity world, they, they don't even call it divorce anymore, right? They, they call it conscious uncoupling. And then what we do with the, the kids is now uh, conscious co-parenting. And uh, it sounds very responsible and, and uh, mature. And so, um, you know, this is not to, to, uh, to pick on people, but um, that, that is just a, a degrading and devaluing of what marriage is, the preciousness that Jesus is talking about here. And so that permanence is uh, not to be trifled with. Obviously, there's devastating consequences to sin like this, folks. Devastating. It's just uh, destructive. It's uh, depressing. It's uh, just, just it leads to uh, nothing but but negative things. But I, I want to say along with that, that God gives so much grace. God gives so much grace. His grace is greater than our sin. It's not just a hymn. Hey, it's a truth from God's word. It's amazing grace. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And I, I just want to encourage those who perhaps even among us who may have been um, have had a divorce okay, to to rest upon the sweetness of God's promises and the amazingness of God's forgiveness and Jesus's provision at the cross. It was an amazing atonement. Okay? It was a profound price that he paid and there's no more guilt because he paid the price for all our sins all of your sins every single one of them including divorce and so we we were quick to note a few months ago that abortion is not the unforgivable sin sexual immorality pornography is not the unforgivable sin Um, just there's a whole slew of them that we can think about Okay? But in the end, God calls us to repent. And if you've repented, you need to rest free that there's no more condemnation for those who are actually in Christ Jesus and rejoice over that. So, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, the Pharisees, I feel like, were, were uh, taking just uh, adventures and asking the wrong question. Okay? And the truth is, sometimes we do that, Right? They're asking, can we divorce? Can we divorce for any reason? Is it lawful? Okay, how close to the line can I go? How far can I go without sinning? Okay, that's kind of uh, uh, something that, that seems uh, to be implied there as I was just meditating on this. And, you know, so that question versus what will be honoring and pleasing to my king who died for me? Right? So I think that's uh, worth our consideration this morning as we think about Marriage, think about this topic of divorce, and as we extend that to other areas of our life. Hey, God is for us, He's with us, and um, we don't want to be resigned to God's truths, guys, about marriage. Uh, we want to rejoice over them. And again, that, that applies to all the other things that, that Scripture addresses in, in life, and He gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness in it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us about. The preciousness, as we, as we emphasize this morning, the, the permanence of what marriage is supposed to be and how you created it to be from the beginning. And thank you, God, for just addressing even the, the sinfulness of divorce and um, how there are just, um, just few 
few exceptions uh, to, to that outcome that nobody wants, that you don't want, and yet uh, you've made um, provision, concession for that as well. So, Lord, I pray that this has been helpful to all of us, uh, our spirits today, uh, that it speaks to our hearts, that we would uh, truly embrace uh, what Jesus says um, marriage is all about and what your word explains uh, throughout. And um, we can take that again, Lord, into our lives and apply it and uh, bring this into this, this world which uh, just degrades all of these things which are, which are your design. But uh, we want to uphold them and um, thank you for them. So, Lord, we, we pray that the, the rest of this, this day would be honoring to you and um, let our hearts be filled with encouragement as we consider your truth in Christ's name. Amen.